Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Andrew Daniel, who is the founder of the Center for Sinosomatics. He is an expert on how our bodies literally have a death grip on our traumas, negative behavior patterns, and mental blocks. Welcome to the episode, Andrew Daniel. Thanks for being here, brother. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited to have you on because there's so much talk about traumas right now and this looking into our bodies. So much in the history has been about how we're thinking about things, talking things out. But it seems like you're about getting into our bodies and recognizing how the traumas that we're experiencing get gets locked in certain parts of our bodies. And, and this resonates for me because I, I take a lot of yoga and at the end of a class, there'd be people in there weeping, yes. crying, um, curled up in a fetal position. I've had that kind of catharsis in yoga or sometimes in a boxing class. Um, can you talk to us about what, what's happening here? Yes. Well, that's a, that's a great question. It's a big question. Um, my approach, what I've discovered is that there are these stories and then there are these mythologies and then there are these archetypes and traumas and stuck emotional blocks and uh, worldviews that we have. And f- as you said earlier, most of the research and literature and academic and medical focus has been on the mind or the chemicals in our body and even our brain, our our neurochemistry and the way our brain works. Uh, But there's been not a lot of mainstream focus on the body's role in this, not just the the body housing the mind and the brain, but actually the body itself being a home for the stuff. And in my own experience, in my own life, and in the work I do with my clients, these, these traumas not only show up in the body, but it's a story. It's a archetype. It's a way of seeing the world that also shows up in the body. And so it was a, a very big paradigm shift for me because not only was th- this emotional, as you said, at the end of yoga class, there's people weeping. Not only was there this emotional component to the body, but there was also this almost belief, there was almost this way of seeing and moving through the world that was connected to the body. And so I really discovered that how you do one thing is how you do everything. How you move and show up in your body, how you literally embody is the same as you move through the world. So the way you move through your body, in your body, the way you show up here 
is the way you do that in your communication, in your relationships, in your career, and through your life. So when we're talking about embodying the trauma, that's what it sounds like you're saying. Like we at some point start to embody the trauma, meaning that uh, it impacts us in a way, it may be in a certain part of our body where it's our hips or our chest or our head, you know, people get a lot of headaches. Um, And then it affects how we start to navigate through the world. We're kind of engaging with the world through our trauma. Yes. Through our pain, through where we're stuck. How do we, so, and it sounds like movement is a way of, is it about... Is it about getting rid of the trauma or the pain, or is it about just moving it and breaking it up, or is it about something else? It's about something else. So I I take a different approach than uh, other, uh, let's say, practitioners. Um, A lot of people have came up with practices and theories and ways of doing stuff that is a way to avoid having to feel things. And in my work, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of people doing this cinosomatic process. There's not a single one that's healed, that skipped over, that avoided, that bypassed the feeling. And so we don't necessarily have to relive the trauma, but we have to go into it. We have to go into these stories. And what I mean by that is if you if you are dissociated, let's let's say something traumatic has happened to you. And one of the responses to that is to dissociate. Well, you're you're not going to be able to reclaim your functional life if you don't associate back into yourself. And the way through that is into facing these stories. Andrew, sorry to cut you off. Can you explain for the listeners who may not know what disassociation is? A a good way to imagine it is, well, one thing's uh, in, in movies or video games where if you're looking through your own eyes, right? So imagine a story being told for the first person perspective or a video game as you're seeing through the character's eyes or a movie where the camera acts as that person's point of view. You are associated. Dissociated is where you pull out of that. You're no longer in it. You're no longer looking and feeling from it within yourself. You are outside of yourself looking in third person. You become a third person perspective to your life or to that thing rather than first person. Thank you. So that, so understanding that the healing comes from the feeling rather than an avoidance or further suppression or denial or skipping over it it really reverses the direction a lot of us go 
because a lot of us are trying to avoid the feeling. We don't want to feel bad. We don't want to face these things. I've never met anybody, uh, client or otherwise in life, who has healed or transformed or has grown uh, by avoidance. Everything that we do in order to heal and to move forward in our life has to come from making the choice, from taking responsibility to start looking at these things and to going into them and letting ourselves be healed by feeling them. I want to go back a, a, a little bit to where you talked about uh, the body's role in trauma is wrapped in story and archetypes and, and paradigms. Can you talk to us about that? Because w w what it sounds like you're saying is that when we, if I feel tension in my stomach, it's the story I tell myself about that tension in my stomach or about the headache that I'm experiencing that can amplify it or break it down. Yeah, so let me, I, I think it would be very helpful to, to back up a second and uh, explain what it is that I do, what cinesomatics is, because that, that's going to provide a really helpful context for this. So cinesomatics, the, the word cine comes from video and movement, cinema, cinesomatics, and somatics is of the body. So what I do is I have people move in their body. So we can have them uh, move through dance. I have people walk on a slack line. People shake their hands. I have people uh, portray archetypes through their body. And so through that physical movement, I, I'm recording that. So we use high-end cinema equipment to film this process. Then what we do is we sit down and we play that video back of their movement, and I give them feedback. I reflect back to them what it is that I see. I reflect back to them the subconscious stories, patterns, traumas, emotions, blocks, ways of being in the world that I see show up in their body on the video. And then they get to see that for themselves. They get to see themselves on video with all of this stuff playing out. So to answer your question, these stories, so a story is essentially all of the narrative and noise around the facts, around the truth, right? So a story would be, so the other day I was saw this guy and he was really mean and he has this really ugly face and he's kind of a jerk and I don't think that he's really a, a wonderful person and I don't know if I deserve to be treated that way, but I might be because my dad treated me like that and he kind of did look like my dad. So, so you can see there's all of this narrative around it. And so if you extract, if you extract or subtract away that story, you would simply have, I saw this guy yesterday and he didn't treat me very well. So when we have things that happen to us in our life, most of the time what we do is we create a story around it. We start telling ourselves a narrative about why it happened, who we are, why it should, why it shouldn't, all of this stuff. None of that is real. What is real is what actually happened. And so for most of us, those stories are one of the things that keep 
the trauma, that keep the pain, that keep the stuckiness alive is we keep retelling a story about what happened rather than actually owning what happened, going into it, and feeling it. And this all plays out through the movement of the body. We can watch somebody move, and a story about their childhood plays through the way that they move their hands. A story about how their parents were raised gets passed on, and they take it on for themselves. And the way they walk through the room reveals the ancestral stories, the mythologies that were passed down. Now, would some of that be context-related or circumstantial, meaning, you know, I imagine the way I would walk into a room that I was teaching uh, versus walking into uh, my living room, uh, you know, during the holidays, my body language might be different. So are we trying to get people to move through the world the same way no matter what the circumstance are or is it just about an awareness it's a great question well what we would first want to look at is is the context and your relationship to it so the way you relate to let's say being at home on holiday is one way and perhaps the way you relate to teaching in a classroom is another And so we would start exploring those relationships. You may find that one is more functional than the other, or you may find that there's a common thread. Maybe you find that when you go into the classroom, you put on a persona. So a mask comes up and you you feel like you have to do the, the teacher authority role. And if you do that, well, you'll lose a bit of vulnerability. You lose a bit of authenticity. You lose a little bit of you. And maybe when you go home, that mask is gone, and so you're maybe more playful and funny and more intimate at home. And so what we want to do is look at how that's interfering with what you want in your life. Uh, See, that makes sense because it it sounds like what you're saying then is it, it can be adaptive, meaning that as long as we're aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it, then... Uh, it can, we can be empowered by it. It's when we're kind of operating on some subconscious uh, level and not aware of how we're showing up and why we're doing things that can interfere with how we're moving forward. Yeah, and that is also literally how you move forward in your body. So we we get them to move, and then we, they they're given feedback. Would this would this be the same protocol for someone, say, who is struggling with suicidal ideation, right? Like, they 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 have these psych aches, typically in the in the head is where they're feeling it, and so they come in and they dance. How are you? I guess the question is, how are you selecting what type of movement uh, is best for them, or is it we just move them through? whatever they select. Well, the movements that we can do uh, are both. We can have general movement, which is just simply moving the body, and a lot of subconscious information comes from that. 
Well, we can also have specific movement, which can be related to archetypes. So, for example, I could ask you to say, all right, show me through your body, through feeling of your body, uh, teaching. And then you would show up how your body represented that archetype of teaching. So, in traditional psychology, we understand that the mind has what's called internal representations. If I say elephant, if I say pizza, if I say ocean, you have an image. There's maybe a sound, a flavor, a smell, a feeling. So this is this is understood. I mean, this is we're doing this millions of times every day. Well, what I discovered is that the body has its own version of that. The body has a somatic representation. And this can show up in these archetypes. So giving could be an archetype. Receiving could be an archetype. Um, feeling alive. Uh, feeling purposeful. Uh, being worthy. Um, feeling loved. These are all things that in our body we have a certain way that it symbolically represents those things. Now, that may or may not match what's in our mind. So if we, if we feel like, let's say, yeah, we're worthy of love, all right. And they say, great, well, show that to me in your body. Well, the body may have a completely different way. Maybe when the body moves, it looks very sad and depressed, and scared, afraid, huddled in the ground. Well, that doesn't match the feeling of being worthy. And so when I would work with somebody who is in this space, as you said, um, thinking about ending it, uh, I can relate to that. You know, when I was young, I wanted to kill myself. Uh, so it's something that I really understand because I've been there, and I've moved through it. And I now live a, a very successful, happy, joyous, purposeful life. And a lot of this came from going into all of these things that is related to that, but in the body. So some of the stuff I listed about uh, feeling worthy, uh, being lovable, uh, being uh, purposeful, you know, having meaning in life. All of these things are something that we could get the client to do to show in their body. And from that movement, we can start to reveal the hidden trauma, the hidden blocks, the subconscious patterns, the belief systems, and all of the emotional um, all of the emotional material that is keeping somebody uh, stuck in that state. So once they go through the movement part and they get the feedback, they receive the feedback, do they then go through another movement part or what's the, the third step after that? Well, oftentimes, just in the feedback, they start having breakthroughs. Uh, so when you start to see yourself, so let's say you've just spent your whole life, and this happens to some people. They, they go through their whole life and they're not told how wonderful they are. They're not given a reference point for how lovable and worthy and wonderful that they are. 
And so by doing this process, if there's no other, let's say, trauma, if there's no other you know, kind of heavy layer of stuff on top of that, if they've just simply never seen how lovable and wonderful and worthy they are, by doing this process, when we're sitting down and they're seeing themselves move in their body, they're seeing nothing, right? It just looks like they're moving. But as I give them feedback and I'm showing them how wonderful they are showing up in their body, if if they are, if that's what they're doing, um, if they're showing up in a way that shows themselves as very worthy and lovable, if that's what's actually showing up in their body, I'm going to be giving them that feedback. And oftentimes, it's the first time these people see those things in themselves because it's not just you know, anybody could say it. It's a completely different thing to see these things in yourself, in your body. Yeah, I, I take a, a class um, or course, Toastmasters, where you yes. get up and you give a speech and and you immediately get feedback. And I find it very therapeutic to put on a performance or give a speech and then have somebody have someone objectively uh, give you feedback, and because I think typically in the real world you, you, we don't get feedback as much Correct. as we get critiqued. Yes. Yeah, we yeah. you know um, or, or attacked, or, um, or or someone is trying to give us feedback, but they're just n- not you know capable or skilled at it. Or we get we get uh, cheerleaded, right? People fluff us up, you know, and and that's not real either. You know, if you're if you're a dis if you're a distasteful person, if you're somebody in the world that um, doesn't isn't actually performing at the level that you think you are, you need feedback. You don't need people being yes men. You don't need people uh, lying to you to make you feel better. You need to learn the truth. You need to hear the truth so you can make a new choice. So you you know it's not helpful. So on either side. As you said, we're not getting accurate feedback about how we're showing up. And without accurate feedback, how are you going to course correct? So let's can we dig a little deeper into that? Because, you know, I it sounds like you're familiar with Toastmasters. And one of the ways that we give feedback is the sandwich method, where we talk about one thing that we enjoyed about their speech, and then we talk about one thing they can improve. And then we end with, you know, one thing that we enjoyed again. Um, how would you, for people listening in who want to give maybe their children feedback on their performance or their spouse feedback, like is there a, a, a technique or a certain way that you found that's effective? Yes, it's quite, quite different than that um, because the, the work that we do is fairly advanced. So when you're off out in the street, uh, you don't necessarily say the kind of things that I will say in a, in a therapy session um, you know, because people are paying for this time and they just need that information as quickly as possible. And so one of the, the – there's a few things here. I actually have a chapter in my book um, and the chapter is about feedback. It's how to give feedback and it also tells you what feedback is not. So let's actually start with what feedback – the best way to talk about feedback is what it is not. So feedback is not right or wrong. It is not good or bad. 
It is not rescuing. It is not codependent. It is not should or shouldn't. It's not advice. It's not an opinion. It's not an attack. It's not a critique. It's none of this. Feedback is simply a reflection. You're reporting the details of what you see and feel. So just starting with that list of what it's not is a great way to start. If anything that you're saying falls into any of those items in the list I just said, it's not feedback. So a great place to start after that, so you let's say you're, you're saying something to your spouse, to your child, what you do is you just tell the truth. You report the details. You're not attacking them. You're not making them wrong. You're not interjecting your opinion. You're just sharing how you felt, what your experience was of what they did, and what you see. Now, as a parent, uh, you know, you probably would also want to give advice, but advice is separate from feedback. It is different from that. You can give them together at the same time, but it's really important to understand those are not the same. A critique isn't feedback. When you're doing it with criticism, you just simply report the details. If you're angry, if you're upset, if you're jealous, if you're afraid, all of those things distort the feedback. All of those things um, uh, you know, taint, they, they pervert the feedback, and it's no longer feedback. Uh, a final thing that I'll share on the feedback is understanding that all feedback is love. If it's not loving, it's not feedback. As well as if it is feedback, it is loving. And a lot of people have trouble with this. They struggle with this because if you say uh, you're being abusive, you're being narcissistic, uh, I feel that what you're doing is manipulative. It sounds bad, right? We hear those words and, and there's all this negative connotation to it. But if you do it as true feedback, as I just said it, if you can feel into what I said, there was no judgment. I wasn't making anybody wrong. I wasn't angry. I wasn't defensive. I wasn't attacking. I wasn't uh, giving suggestions or opinion. I was simply reporting the details. If you can get to a place where you can share feedback like that, as well as being in a place where you can receive feedback like that without getting defensive, you are going to be one of the most uh, successful and functional people in the world because it is, it is very hard to do. It is very hard to give and to receive feedback uh, because uh, we have stories around it. We have judgments because all of those things that I just listed uh, meddle with it. So in order to give really good feedback, uh, you have to stop doing all of those things and just report the details, just tell the truth. So I, I, I would like some clarification because what sure. I hear you saying is, um, you know, you can, part of feedback would be saying to someone, you're abusive, you're being narcissistic. Um, I forgot. Those were just ex those are just ex examples. as examples. It could be, it, it could be your your. There's so much beauty coming through you. Um, you know the way that you show up is very supportive. Uh, you know it. It's not just uh, negative. Um, I I guess what I've studied is when 
like to say someone is abusive or narcissistic is to place a label on them and that could make someone a bit defensive no, versus I, I, speaking well, to a specific behavior. Yeah, yeah. Well, notice I didn't say they are a narcissist or they are an abuser. Oh, so please clarify. Yeah, I said, I said the feedback is that is narcissistic. You're abusive, right? You're doing something abusive. You could specify if you would like, um, but and what you said is is valid. It's you don't label the entire person as that. You just speak to the behavior. You speak to that specific thing. Oh, by placing being in front of it instead of saying you are your what you're at what your um, what your part is is saying you're being narcissistic instead of saying you are narcissistic. Yeah, or you could say this is narcissistic. Again, uh, and, and again, please forgive me because I just used a, a just a very quick example. Um, it, it all depends on the circumstance. You know, these these things, what you give feedback on needs to be specific. So uh, you could say, because the feedback is in all in context. You don't just walk up to somebody and say, hello, person, you're narcissistic. No, this is all in context of something that they're doing or they're uh, conveying uh, in themselves in the moment. And so it's directed to something specific, yes. Yeah, I I like that distinction of uh, your being versus you are. It it does speak to the the behavior. I'm sorry, you want to add more? Yeah, or, or the thing you're doing or this or the way you did that was narcissistic or this thing, you know, when you say this to me, that's abusive. Or when you say this to me, that feels very loving. Um, Again, feedback is not good or bad, right or wrong. Uh, Feedback is what we would normally consider anything that's positive or negative. And so if you, when we give that feedback, say we were to say to someone you're because I, I could imagine a lot of listeners probably are in um, abusive relationships and with someone or know of someone who is uh, being narcissistic yeah. um, and the person goes, no, I'm not. Then how do we respond beyond that? Do we just let it go and, and are just grateful we made our peace or? Well, um, I, I think there's a much more fundamental problem if they're in a relationship with someone who, who's abusive, they should leave. Uh, I know that's, Sometimes easier said than done, but guess what? Um, a lot of people don't want feedback. A lot of people don't want to hear the truth. Those aren't people you can have a relationship with. What do I mean by that? Having a relationship, they are una- you're unable to relate to this person. There is no intimacy. There's no connection. There's no willingness. You can't give feedback to somebody who doesn't want it. So that's what that's one of the first things is that you what I'm saying here with feedback is traditionally in a therapeutic sense uh, where someone is seeking and has permission to give that feedback. Um, I, I think in most instances is if you wish to give feedback, uh, you need to ask for permission. Uh, the only other instance that I think that wouldn't be the case is if someone is. Uh, disrespecting your boundaries. So if somebody is is crossing a line with you, you have every right to give them feedback on what they did. Otherwise, uh, you, you need some sort of container. You need some sort of permission. Now, if you're with someone who's abusive, uh, it really 
you know, it, it doesn't, I wouldn't even recommend giving feedback because they don't want to hear it. They're going to get defensive. They're going to attack you. They're going to use it against you. Um, it's just not the appropriate thing to do in most instances. Yeah, I love that definition of a relationship, meaning that you can relate to this person and build intimacy and and they're also showing a, a willingness. Because I, I think intimacy is one of those words that just recently been coming up for me. It's a word I've never used. I've just, I grew up either on love and hate. And I think mm-hmm. intimacy is a much more uh, nuanced uh, version of that. Uh, I, and I know this is this might be asking more of you, but can you talk to us more about what intimacy is in a relationship? Because I think a lot of people don't recognize that it, that's what they're lacking or missing in their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Uh, one of my favorite topics. Um, intimacy is is literally letting people in, right? Into me, I see. You know you, that you've probably heard that little phrase. Well, it's actually a very accurate. So intimacy is being able to feel into another and let another feel into you. It's opening yourself up. It's also a willingness to go into them. So it's a willingness to go into another person emotionally, energetically, mentally, sometimes physically when it comes to to sex, uh, and also the other way around, letting them uh, see inside of you. Uh, What one of the most important things around intimacy is that it demands vulnerability. You cannot have intimacy without vulnerability. So anytime you think you're having intimacy, but you're closed off and shut down and you don't want to be vulnerable, it's not true. So the first thing around intimacy is this idea of letting ourselves become vulnerable. And at an even, even, at an even deeper level, letting ourselves be penetrable, dropping the armors, dropping the the barriers, learning boundaries, right? Learning appropriate boundaries so you can drop the armors, you can drop the walls, you can drop the sword, you can drop the gun, right? Drop all of these things that we've built up to protect ourselves and rightfully so, right? We we've have experiences in life where we have been hurt or abused, you know, something bad has happened. And so we start closing off. We start shutting down. We don't want to feel that pain. We don't want to get hurt again. The problem is when we're out of those situations, that armor's still there. We don't drop it. And so that is going to be one of the primary things that prevents intimacy. For example, there's a lot of men who don't have a context of intimacy. They're taught. Uh, especially here in the West, we're taught to su- to suppress and deny our feeling, to be stoic. We're taught that vulnerability is a bad thing. It's a weakness. We're taught all of these things. And then guess what happens? When we're with the person we love, we're, when we're in the bedroom, when we're with our kids, when we're with uh, friends, people we love and care about, our family, we can't drop it. They can't. They don't have access to us. We don't have that really, really deep soul fulfilling connection. Why? Because we're terrified of dropping the armor, drop, dropping the barriers, dropping the sword, and letting people in. Well, why? Well, because when you let them in, when you let yourself be vulnerable, it means 
that you open yourself up to getting hurt again, and that's necessary. But it's also necessary to have the boundaries and discernment, right? I do not encourage people to become vulnerable until they learn boundaries, they learn what their needs are, and they develop discernment. Once you have those, those act as a set of wisdom. It acts as a set of tools that allow you to drop all of the armor and stay open and be willing to be penetrated, to be willing for people to see inside of you. And by doing that, it also allows that energy to come out. It also allows that love and tenderness and connection to reach into somebody else and help them with the same thing. I, I love that. And it, it, I'm so glad you cleared that up because I had never heard of it about in terms of the willingness and openness to be into someone and allowing someone to be into you to to let them walk around and um, and and be vulnerable and, and sharing who you are. Um, going back to the the dancing and the slacklining and uh, the different movement modalities. Does it seem to you, uh, Andrew, that we in general just need to be more physical um, in our day? And and I'm not talking about working out. I think uh, this excessive need to to work out and these hyper uh, exercises is, I think, turn people off from any type of activity. They're like, well, if I'm not gonna, you know, climb Mount Everest or P90X <laughs> or, or you know, yeah. uh, 90 minutes of Bikram yoga, then I'm just gonna hang out here on the couch. Like everything just sounds so extreme. Does it just does it seem like we just need more movement to kind of break up the the trauma? Because I mean, we we all experience traumas on some level. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I would say yes, of course. Uh, You have to keep moving. Uh, Movement is life. Uh, Everything spins. Everything vibrates. Everything moves. Stagnation is death. Literally. Literally. Stagnation in ponds. Stagnation in waters. It starts fermenting. It starts rotting. Stagnation in ourself. Uh, Our bodies start atrophying. Stagnation of our mind, uh, we lose our memory, we lose our ability to think and to focus. And we see this in social media, the cell phones, all of this stuff. Uh, uh, stagnation in our emotional relationship sense. We forget and, and are unable to relate to others and to have empathy and connect. And we saw that after the pandemic. We see it with young children. So movement in all forms, a movement of mind, a movement of uh, emotion, a movement of spirit, a movement of body is absolutely crucial. Now, when it comes to the the logical physical movement that you're talking about, there's one thing that is the missing key that makes all of the difference. Now, when people go to the gym, when people work out, when people are moving – We're moving all throughout life. When we eat, when we shower, when we walk, everything. We're moving in all of these ways. The secret to actually transforming your life through that movement is feeling. 
we can move through the world in our body and be completely checked out and dissociated. That is going to have a completely different effect on our life and our nervous system than being associated and feeling. Actually going back into our body, feeling our toes, feeling all of the parts of our body. And by doing that, we start accessing these stories. And you can have a life where you're moving through the world, you're feeling your hands, you're looking at your hands. This is mindfulness times about 10. This is mindfulness taken to a somatic level. I actually do meditations. They're somatic meditations where we get people, instead of sitting there trying not to think, using their head to not think, we get people out of their head into their body and start feeling through usually gentle movements, and that brings the awareness. So having feeling, letting ourselves feel emotionally and physically as we move through the world uh, is absolutely crucial. There's so much talk about ayahuasca, MDMA, all these mind-altering, mood-altering substances. Uh, What's your take on that? It sounds like we really can – I've never tried any of those. I've maybe smoked weed uh, maybe two or three times. But what I find is what seems to be in alignment with what you're sharing is we can tap into these things through moving our body, whether it's dance or slacklining or hiking or swimming or uh, some type of of somatic experience. Uh, What view or perspective do you have on that? Well, it comes back to what you said in the very beginning. You know, after doing a session of yoga, there's people weeping. You know, that is a, a wonderful way to start unlocking those trapped emotions. You know, because different parts of the body, you know, hold the different things. These holding patterns. A lot of a lot of the language that we have around our body, uh, and our common phrases like "oh, that person looks so stuck up," or "it looks like they got a stick up their butt," or whatever it is. Well, these through doing this work with hundreds of people, you you start to see that some of these phrases that talk about the body uh, are are actually more than just metaphorical. They're they're literally symbolic. And so when you have a stock holding pattern in your body, when something's tight or tense, well, you're also emotionally guarded. You're also holding on to that story. Uh, and so this stuff really translates to the somatic work. Now, when you're doing yoga, now when you're doing fitness, when you're doing athletic stuff, you don't necessarily have that awareness. And so while it's very helpful, it lacks the that connection. It lacks the awareness that, oh, this isn't just a tight spot. Oh, this isn't just a the way that my hips rotate. There's actually a story here. This way my hips rotate is perhaps because I feel shame around my sexuality and sensuality. And so I shut my hips down. So that awareness is really key. Now, bringing that back to your question about the psychedelics, I have uh, done a few of these uh, plant medicines, um, all ceremonially, all for healing, all therapeutically, um, not much recreational use, and I've only done these a few times. So my experience is, is limited in them, but I 
have had some experiences. Um, all of my experiences of the uh, the plant medicines done in integrity and with intention and in ceremony and in sacred reverence and respect um, have all been incredibly helpful. Now, the thing with these is that there, there's a few things with the psychedelics. One is that you only have one choice point. That's when you choose to take the, sub, the substance and ingest it. After that, you're at the mercy. It's going to take you where it's going to take you. Now, that can be very uh, useful for people that are very stubborn and their ego really likes to control things. So for people that are controlling things every step of the way, that can be a great doorway because, well, you don't really have control. And the more you control it, the worse your experience is going to be. So one of the issues with that uh, for uh, other people is that you're not at choice. You're not making these conscious choices to feel, to face the shadow material. You're not making the conscious choice to look at your inner demons. The medicine is doing it for you. And there's a certain sense of a lack of agency, a lack of empowerment. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing with that is that you're not always conscious. So with the work that I do and the work that I suggest, you are conscious during the whole process, which means all of the lessons, all of the wisdom, all of the healing that's happening is happening at both the subconscious and the conscious level. So your mind is able to have wisdom. You're able to access, a to gain knowledge, to gain wisdom, to be able to make conscious new decisions based off of what you're experiencing because you're aware of all of it. Whereas when you're on the medicine, a lot of that is subconscious. A lot of that you're not really fully there. So what happens is that when people come out of it, there's something that's called integration. And you really need somebody and you need a context for all of this archetypical, symbolic, spiritual uh, symbolism and experiences that you had. And most facilitators... Um, and most people don't have the context. They don't know how to integrate all of that symbolic, archetypical, um, pictorial, geometrical, whatever it is, data. And so without that integration, they it doesn't necessarily allow them to make different choices in their life. It doesn't necessarily make them more functional in the world. And so I believe that when you do this healing work, not only should you have a subconscious shift and an unconscious healing, but having that conscious awareness done from choice is going to empower you to know how to make better decisions uh, in your life moving forward. Thank you for uh, expanding on that. Earlier you mentioned that you also experienced a uh, uh, I don't know if it was one or more suicide attempts. What was your path forward from there? So I was I was bullied and teased since I was about six years old. I had warts on my fingers. And that set in motion uh, about 12 years of my schooling, 
where I would sit. I was sitting alone in lunch, ostracized, um, people knocking my books out, being made fun of, uh, bullying, uh, lack of social skills. Um, as I got, as I became a teenager, and I started uh, having hormone shifting and, and wanting to uh, talk to girls and be with girls and, and starting to explore my sexuality and uh, romantic life. Uh, being rejected, being humiliated. That led me to a place uh, for, you know, for a long time, I fantasized about killing myself. I just, you know, I, I didn't see a way out. And, and along with that, I fantasized about revenge, you know, of going in and killing, you know, shooting up the school, you know, really, really dark, um, angry, painful things. And fortunately, uh, I never acted upon any of those because, well, the truth was I was a coward. I, it sounded very painful. I, I was scared of it. Um, and so I was caught in this place where I, I wanted to end the pain, um, but I was too afraid to take my life or someone else's life. And I also kind of had the feeling that that really wouldn't solve anything. Um, great, I'm dead. Or great, they're dead. Well, that didn't really get rid of the pain. And so there was this little tiny, I call it my, my pilot light. There was this tiny, 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 tiny little light inside of me that said, this isn't it. This doesn't have to be it you're more than this you know the pilot light when you think about your furnace is you know when the main flame goes out you still have the small little one that you can relight it it's not completely gone and so that there was that little light inside of me that said you know you know it's just a little tap it was just a little whisper and in those dark dark moments i started to hear that it wasn't like an angel in my head. It wasn't like a literal voice. But there was that sense. There was that sense that this wasn't my destiny. And so I had a choice to make. Well, that choice was to either end it or do whatever it took to figure this out. To do whatever it took to be happy again. Do whatever it took to have friends. To get better with girls, to not hate myself and be angry, to uh, not be so depressed and lonely. And because I chose not to take my life or anyone else's, well, the only other option was to do whatever it took to figure this out. And so what I did, as, <laughs> and it's going to sound super, super lame, uh, but it was, but it was the first thing I did, I hopped onto my computer, and this is like 2003, 2004, hopped onto my Google, you know, what was Google back then, and I typed in how to be cool, <laughs> how to make friends, how to get girls to like you, literally that, uh, those questions, and I got a bunch of nonsense mostly, but there was a few things that I found in that early, early internet that when I applied, actually gave me a different result. And so in, that mo in those moments of, in my late teens, 
I realized that there was something that I could do, that there was knowledge, that there was something out there I could learn, and if I applied it, I could get a different result in my life. It wasn't just, oh, this is me, poor me. This is this is it. There's nothing else. It, it was a huge turning point in my life that showed me I had hope. There was real hope that there was something I could do. I, I had power to change at least something tiny in my life. And that set me off on a 15-year journey of self-help, personal development, uh, spirituality, healing, uh, holistic health, uh, embodiment, uh, and all sorts of stuff. So that was the, the, the origin point, the nexus point of the beginning of the rest of my life. And it took a long time and a lot of money and a lot of work and a lot of trial and error to not only get better with girls, to not only get friends, to not only be happy, to not only have better relationships, to not only uh, love my life, but to actually get to a place of great success and functionality and awakening and truth and wealth and abundance and then being of service to the world and then taking that entire journey and everything I learned and start to help other people do the same. Wow. I think uh, I speak for most of the single guys in here when I say, is there a book or what, what's a, a one tip that you remember that helped you get better with women? oh well there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff that worked to a point there was a lot of stuff um that worked to a point one of them you know was stop being so nice and and then it's like all right well the bad boys all right well i tried that and it got better results right being a, a girly effeminate weak pushover submissive um sappy guy uh, as a as a 18 year old uh didn't quite uh do it for uh pretty much every single girl or a woman and so the the bad boys they had other qualities and so i went in that direction and that worked better um but i quickly found that there was a, there was abuse there there was pain there was trauma I was avoiding stuff and so that didn't work either and I tried everything, and there's a lot. There's a lot more. I I literally wrote uh, material on this. I was teaching holistic sexuality and uh, helping men with this particular thing because it was, it was the thing that I uh, struggled with in the beginning. Uh, but to to give a, a very practical tip that you asked for, um, Gosh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I would say one of the biggest ones is finding a sense of purpose. Um, finding a sense of purpose and uh, really learning about sexual polarity, of understanding what makes the feminine feminine and what makes the masculine masculine. And having a purpose for your life. Uh, because one of the things I realized is that the, the really simple tips, tactics, techniques, strategies, pickup lines, 
those did nothing in comparison to actually becoming the kind of man a woman would want to be with. That paled in comparison with with actually healing my insecurities, with healing my neediness, with healing my codependency, healing my desperation, with becoming enough, with becoming worthy. So uh, I know I'm not giving you what you asked for, um, but I'm given what actually makes the results. Uh, and that's a journey and it's an adventure. So I, I guess in retrospect, that one tip would be you know, to, to start working on yourself, to start healing, to start looking at all of the things you're doing um, that is keeping women away. Because it's not about adding more. It's not about adding to you. You're already enough. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. So what you need to do is start subtracting, is to start healing, is to start letting go of the stories that say you're not enough. Women don't like me. I'm too short, too fat. I'm too ugly. I don't make enough money. Uh, My father left me. I'll never be a strong man. My mother abandoned me. Um, Women are all going to do the same. Is to start looking at all of these stories that bind you to that loneliness, to bind you to that isolation, to bind you to that unworthiness, and to start that process. It can be intimidating. It can sound like a lot, but I can promise you, I can guarantee you, based on my own life experience of doing this process and helping countless men and women do the same thing, it is worth all of it. Because what happens is you're no longer trying to be something you're not. You're allowing that light within you. You're allowing who you really are to come through in a way that women crave, that men adore. And it's within you. You just got to clean off all of the dirt on the windshield to let that shine through. Andrew, when I tell you, you gave us more than what was asked for. Like, I read the book The Game by Neil Strauss, and at the end of it, it's a, it's a game, it's a book about how to pick up women in this whole society, pick up artists, and they have all these tools and tactics and strategies. And at the very end, like the last page of the book, he says, all those things work, but nothing is more powerful than having a purpose, having something to do other than pick up women. And I never forgot that. So for you to come back full circle and say, it's about having a purpose. Um, One of the things I noticed is that we say nice guy and we say bad boy, but neither one of those are a man. And and when we become a man, a man is someone who has purpose. Yes. And uh, and so I, I, I thank you for highlighting that and sharing your journey. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think would be valuable to, to the listeners? Well, I have had my experience of wanting to end it. And one of the things I say in my book, Awaken to Your True Self, is really what the recognition of true hope is. True hope is the recognition that you can save yourself. Is understanding that if it's to be, it's up to me. 
Now, it doesn't mean that you power trip. It doesn't mean you don't get help. It doesn't mean you're not supported. It doesn't mean you don't have a team. It doesn't mean you don't have uh, needs that other people meet. It means that nobody is going to save you because you don't need saving. No one's going to rescue you because you don't need rescuing. When you can find that place with inside yourself that says, this is a choice. My life is a choice. I know you've been through everything. You, I know it seems like there's nothing left, that it's hopeless. But when you can recognize that it's not about waiting for a sign outside of yourself, that all it is is a choice, a choice that says, it's up to me. When you make that choice, mountains get moved to help you. When you make that choice, people show up. When you make that choice, that you're going to do whatever it takes to figure this out. Or die trying, right? <laughs> do whatever it takes to figure this out or die in the process. Well, if you want to end your life, it's it, 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 what does it matter then, right? So you might as well do everything you can to find out that truth, to find out who you really are underneath all of this, a willingness to go to those depths, a willingness to dive into Dante's Inferno. You know, if there's nothing else left, what do you have to lose besides this understanding, this choice that true hope is a recognition that you can save yourself? True hope is a recognition that you could save yourself. Beautiful. Andrew, if people want to find you, reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? AndrewDaniel.org. AndrewDaniel.org. Yeah. We'll link to that in the show notes. Um, and you've already answered this, but I think the listeners would be upset if I didn't ask it because I asked okay. this of all my guests. <laughs> Because uh, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? Well, I would ask them what they feel. What do you feel? I'd ask them what they feel and to keep feeling. And to keep feeling. And to keep feeling. And I would say, all right. If after feeling everything, Everything, truly everything. If you can say with 100% truth, absolute truth, that you have felt everything to the highest highs, to the deepest, deepest, the deepest part of yourself, that you felt everything, all of the pain, all the sorrow, all of it, and you still want to do it, that is your choice. 
But I invite you to feel all of that stuff first because all of that feeling has everything that you need. It's within you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling the 988 or any of the international phone numbers that are listed in each and every single one of the show notes. If you are in the Sudan, India, Germany, Pakistan, China, wherever you are in the world, there are phone numbers where you can call, chat, text. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Daniel. Or Andrew. <laughs> <I caught you. laughs> it's okay. <laughs>